Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 6, 5 through 14, and 7, 11 through 18. The word of God speaks to us. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day, 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. This is God's word to us. Good morning, church. We doing okay? It's good to be with you guys today. And uh, if you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis 6, the passage that, uh, that was just read. Thank you for that reading this morning. I had one of our pastors, another congregation, uh, send me a text jokingly uh, last night that said after that ball game, he said, um, he said, I'm going to pray for downtown right now that you're not going to preach Noah and the judgment flood with a big smile on your face tomorrow. <laughs> And I said, well, I don't know if that's true, but I'm not afraid to let the orange peek through just a little bit. <laughs> We've got a, a lot in front of us today, and so I want to I wanna get right to it. If you're a guest with us, man, I'm really, really glad you're with us today. I hope today and what we do in God's Word is meaningful to you. If you don't have a Bible and you're downstairs, we have Bibles in the window seals. And um, if you don't have a Bible at all, that's just a gift to you. We would love for everyone here to have a copy of Scripture. But we want to uh, get to God's word today. And so if you would please pray for me, I'll pray for you. And uh, I trust God will shape us by his word. Well, Father, we come to you in the strong name of our Lord Jesus. And we confess the song that we sang, God, not just to be lyrics or something to instrumentation, but we belong to you. 
Whether we come in today belonging to you willingly or we come in today not sure whether or not we want to belong to you, you are God over all and you reign. You've sought us with love and you've sought us with your blood. And so God, I pray that not only what we do in this moment, I'm asking that you would bring power to the preaching in this room of your word for our good, not just for me, but for our good. And I'm also asking that for every pulpit across our city where the gospel is preached, would you bring power to the preaching of your word? We ask God for the renewal of your spirit to wash in this room as well as across our city. Jesus, would you have the glory do your name? Your church is built on the rock of the strong confession that you are Lord and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Be glorified here, be glorified across the city, be glorified across the globe today. We confess Jesus is Lord. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen. Hey, have you ever watched or rewatched a movie as an adult? I know that you have. Rewatched a movie as an adult that you watched originally as a kid. But when you rewatch it as an adult, it's like way more intense than you ever remember it being as a kid. Even to the point where you think to yourself, how, how was I allowed to watch this? How was I allowed? You know, especially what I'm talking about, if you're a parent, there are movies that you watched as a kid or as a teenager, but later in life, you want to watch those movies again and you decide that you want to show them to your kids and you think to yourself, hey, this is for sure age appropriate. Like, this is going to be wonderful family night. Everyone get the chocolates and the popcorn out. We're going to watch a movie together that I watched as a kid. And you watch it back, and then there are these multiple moments of cringe. And you look at your spouse or something, and you say, I just don't remember the movie this way. Or I'm just a hardened sinner that just is able to take everything. <laughs> that was the case for us a couple of years ago when the new Top Gun movie was coming out. And we wanted to show the original Top Gun to our nine and 10 year old daughters who were interested in the sequel. And so we knew that the Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis sex scene was coming a bit later and we had a plan for how to take our own breath away, you know, and move that along. <laughs> but we weren't prepared for all of the other vulgarity that's just in the normal dialogue of the movie. And I, somehow I just didn't remember that movie. I thought it was just, this is a family fun movie about airplanes and going fast. <laughs> I say that because one of the things we've got to know today from the start in our time in the passage is that the story of Noah and the ark and the flood is way more Top Gun than it is VeggieTales. We've made the story of Noah and the ark kids safe for VeggieTales. We make it a story about animals and boats and rainbows and a family man who believes God and protects his family from a really bad rainstorm. That's the story we tell. We ask more questions about dinosaurs and whether or not they were on the boat. Then why did the storm come in the first place? We ask more questions about the giants that were reported to be in the land and what they mean rather than asking questions about how bad did things actually get for those who were made to bear the image of God? We ask more questions about the sheer size of the boat and how did Noah get all of that gopher wood? We ask questions like that and not so much about what is, what is this about? What does it mean? 
When you start to read the story, here's what happens. When you read this story, you get a picture of the widespread violence of humanity. Violence. You get a sense of the judgment of God. You get a sense, listen, of the grief of God. The downpour was more judgment than it was a wild weather pattern. And listen, God caused it. God did it. The rainstorm didn't surprise God. God caused the rainstorm. And it wasn't just about animals getting saved. This is about humanity being judged. The picture we have wouldn't have been peaceful. There were countless dead bodies floating in the water as Noah and his family were in the ark. The story ends with Noah, this man of faith, leading his family off of the boat and God starting over in a new world with him like he did with Adam, giving him the same blessing to fill and multiply the earth. But the story closes with Noah, that same man of faith, who is supposed to bring a new and better start, coming to the end of his life in a drunken stupor and a bizarre sexual encounter in this strange ending that you almost have to read twice to make sure you read it the right way. The biblical story of Noah is way more top gun than it is veggie tales. And here's what's interesting. It's not so much about Noah <laughs> as much as you might have been taught or believed like I did. This story is not so much about Noah, although he's a central figure and there's a lot he has to teach us. This story, spoiler alert, is about God. It's about God. But it raises some really difficult and interesting questions for us to consider, especially today as we open this passage. Questions like, what about the authority of God to judge and execute justice as he determines? What about that? What about the emotional life of God where we're told in our text today that God grieves over sinful humanity? Grieves. And then what does it mean for us that in the midst of all of that, God is still someone who would actually go so far as to make promises, life-saving promises to undeserving people? What does that mean? And so here's my hope for us today as we interact with this somewhat familiar story, that we would consider some things we might have missed. That's my hope. Maybe to put it more plainly, my hope today is that you're given the story of Noah back. You're given the story of Noah back. And so where we pick up in chapter 6 is a continuation from where we left off in chapter 5. Since the fall of Genesis 3, sin and rebellion and the lie about the goodness of God that started this whole mess with Adam and Eve has now spread to all people. It's spread everywhere. And the result of chapter 3 that's made explicit in chapter 5 is death. That's the result of the lie. And there's this refrain that's there in chapter five that Pastor Kevin covered last week, and he died. That's unmistakable, and it's pronounced. And then there's this, the knowledge of the good and evil that Adam and Eve found to be so desirable. The result of that fruit is only multiplied evil. It's only multiplied evil. And so now, chapter six is gonna open and it's continuing this description of the downward spiral of humanity east of Eden. Pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughter and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives, any that they chose. 
And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God had come into daughters of man, they bore them children. And there were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This is a bizarre start to chapter six, and a lot of ink has been spilled on these four verses. Who are these sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? And what do we make of them to be so mighty? Were they giants? Was Goliath a Nephilim? These are questions that, that swirl. And there's a lot going on here that could distract us from the main point. And I don't want us to miss the main point of what's happening in these four verses. So I'll say it plainly. What's happening here is a further description that sin and wickedness and violence and chaos has multiplied since the fall. This is a picture of spiritual chaos, of sexual chaos, of relational chaos. Multiple interpretations just real quickly have been given for who these sons of God are that are coming into the daughters of men. And the oldest interpretation in the history of the church is that likely these were fallen angels or demons who were commandeering the souls of man. And it's these demonized men who were marrying the daughters of other men. David Atkinson scholar says it this way, whoever they were, there is something passionate about their embrace and something monstrous was the outcome. The Nephilim refer apparently to giants, the origin of some who at least, if not all, is traced to these angel marriages. Now I realize that this probably sounds like we've ceased talking about reality and now there's some bizarre sci-fi sidebar in scripture. But let me just say this. We said earlier in our study of Genesis that this was originally written you got to remember, it's originally written to ancient Israel who would have been familiar with the pagan myths of their day. And this wouldn't have sounded crazy to them. Moses was writing with full knowledge of those other worldviews, but he was also writing in defiance of those worldviews. And at very least, what he's trying to show us is that no being, satanic or otherwise, is going to challenge the Lord God. That's a significant theme in this narrative. The undisputed reign of the Lord God amidst chaos is under his control. And so the point is, things are bad. By the time you get to Genesis 6, things are bad. And this is exactly where the next verse goes in verse 5. It ties this whole thing together and it gets us moving this morning. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, notice the language, were only evil continually. Only evil continually. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the justice of God. The justice of God. Remember, Moses, as he is writing to ancient Israel, is trying to answer the question for them, why is the world the way that it is? Post-Exodus Israel, escaping 400 years of slavery, oppressed as slaves as they were for generations. Why is the world fractured like it is, and what does it all mean? And so, with the type of assessment that we get in verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great, only evil continually, with that kind of assessment, some important questions start to rise up. What is God going to do about all that? If it's this bad, what, where is God? Has the power of sin and the sheer volume of wickedness becomes now stronger than the power of God? Can God do anything? 
Will God do anything? Does God have control over chaos? Is there a fight? Pick up with me in verse 6. And so it says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. There's a lot to unpack here, but for now I want you to notice the sinfulness of man provokes the justice of God. You've got to note that. The sinfulness of man provokes the justice of God. The story of the flood is about God's authority to bring divine judgment to sinful humanity. The power of sin and evil is not greater than God. It's not greater than God. He doesn't struggle against the forces of chaos. He has decisive command over the forces of chaos, but it means judgment. The forces of chaos provoke judgment in the world and inside of us. And so here's what's interesting. No one wants to talk about the wrath of God. No one wants to talk about divine judgment. That's why it's easier to make this story about animals and boats. No one wants to talk about these things. But verse five says something amazing that we often fly right over. Look at the first three words of verse five. The Lord saw. The Lord, he saw. I just want to ask you a question this morning. Can you imagine all that God sees? Can you imagine the sheer breadth and the sheer depth of the things that God sees? Not just the things that happen, but the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of everyone on the planet, yours and mine included, that lead to the things that happen. There's so much to look at here, but I want you to notice a verse that Jesus is gonna say in Luke chapter 12 that gives indication of how much God sees. Jesus says in Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said, notice this, whatever you have said in dark shall be heard in the light and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the mountaintops or the housetops. What Jesus is saying is there is nothing in the dark that God doesn't see clearly, nothing. There is no whisper or action in a private room somewhere that God doesn't see or hear with crystal clarity. There is nothing that goes down under the threat of silence from wicked people that God is uninformed about, he sees. And so when it comes to the things that happen right now, for example, in Gaza and in Israel, we cry out for justice, don't we? When it comes to stories of Sudanese genocide and extremist groups raping women, we rightly call out for justice. And so when evils like that come into view, the Lord saw, the Lord still sees. When evils like that come into view, we stop asking questions, why would God judge sin? We stop asking that question. When those evils come into focus, we instead ask, why doesn't he step in and why doesn't he do something about it? And so when it comes to a passage like this, that's about judgment, 
a passage about destruction, we can at times feel like this is an aspect of God's character that is a sort of a skeleton in his closet that we would do better just to sort of hide away and go, no, 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 I promise he's loving. As though his love is abstracted from his justice. But here's what's more true. Our real problem isn't with judgment. That's not your real problem. That's not our real problem. Just look at our current culture that constantly has its finger on the button to cancel someone. We demand judgment. We want judgment. Our problem isn't with someone being drowned by the judgment waters of God. All of us can think of someone that we think ought to be drowned. Our problem, though, deep down is that you and I know that we're not the judge and that makes us nervous. And deep down, we know who we really are and we know what we've really done. And we're good with judgment waters so long as those waters don't come for us. That's the problem. There's a fear of judgment. And what's wild about this account of Noah and the flood, when you look at the sheer volume of evil It's not that judgment, that's not the surprise. The surprise of this passage is that God saved anyone. He saved Noah. That's the surprise of this passage. And so listen, if God is anything, if God is anything, he must be a judge. He must be a judge. What's the alternative? For him to have all power and to have all authority, but for him to hold those things in passivity? That's not a good alternative. For to have an all-powerful God, but to be indifferent, that wouldn't make him good. That wouldn't make him trustworthy. So he must be a judge, and that's part of what makes him good. That's part of what makes him trustworthy. And so listen, all throughout the Bible, you've got to hear this. The judgments of God are actually motivated by his love. Love and judgment aren't two opposite ends of the spectrum. His judgments are motivated by his love. One scholar and pastor says it this way. I love this quote. For love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there's no hope for a slave or a rape victim or a child who's been abused or bullied or people who have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. If nobody is called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then the victims will never see justice. We need a God. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids and who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators uh, of evil from his playground. We need that. And this leads me to the second thing I want you to see in this passage today, the tears of God. The tears of God. This passage, this passage, guys, shows us something absolutely breathtaking about the heart of God, who is a judge. Look at verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Notice these words. And it grieved him to the heart. It grieved him. The Hebrew word translated there, regret, don't get tripped up by that. It's not as though God is thinking he made a mistake. That's not what the word regret there means. It's more like lament. It's more like a heaviness of heart. And we know that it means that because the context of the verse goes on to say, when seeing the sinfulness of man, what did that do for him? It grieved him. A heaviness of heart. 
Maybe the thought of God for you, maybe you're someone who just can't stand the thought of God judging the world. That's a hard thought for you to take. This passage would also say that's a hard thought for God to take. It's a hard thought for God to take. The picture we get here of judgment isn't as though God is just delighting in destruction. The picture we get here of judgment, guys, is that he's executing justice with tears in his eyes. He's executing justice. Let, let, the, let there be weight to that statement that God was grieved. This is the first emotion we get from God in Scripture, that God was grieved. And the word grieved there in Hebrew means deep, unfulfilled longing. It means a deep, bitter anguish. So what does this mean? It means this, guys. It means that God, hold this thought with me, by his own will and out of his own love, it means that God has chosen to bind himself up with us. He's, he's bind his heart and bind his life up with us. God didn't have to connect himself to us like that. He didn't connect himself to us. He didn't bind himself to us because he needed us to complete something that was lacking in him. But what's Bible's teaching is that after he made us in his image, he, he voluntarily bound up his heart with humanity. Now catch this because this is massive. What that means is that God has so chosen to emotionally and relationally connect himself to you and I and the rest of humanity in such a way that his joy is connected to that. And when he sees something go wrong with us, when he sees the rebellion of our hearts play out, it grieves him. It grieves him. Yale professor of theology and philosophy Nicholas Walterstoff once famously said this, the tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God are the meaning of history. And what he means is this. I want you to think about what we're doing here. Think back to Genesis chapter three, verse six. Adam and Eve had just taken of the fruit. In essence, here's what they said. God, we don't want you. We don't want you, we don't need you, we don't trust you. Man is rejecting God. And now the question becomes, after 3 verse 6, if that's the disposition of man toward God, the question becomes, well, then why is there a 3 verse 7? Why is there a 3 verse 7? If man rejected God in 3 6, then why didn't God just end it right there? Why didn't he do it? And if there is a verse 7, why isn't verse 7 of chapter 3 the last verse in the Bible? Man rejected God, and God is done, verse 7. Why didn't God do that? It goes on. In Genesis 6, verse 5, our passage here, God saw the wickedness of man was great, that there was only evil continually. If that's what he saw, then why in the world is there a verse 6? Why didn't God just end it there? He just saw it, and that's the it. Why all this effort to save Noah? Why all this effort to build an ark that took him 100 years to build? Why are we still here? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked that question? With all that's happening in the world, with everything that's happened throughout history, why hasn't God ended it by now? Like, why isn't it over? The answer as to why it's still going is because God has chosen to weep. 
God's chosen to weep. He did here in Genesis 6 what he needed to do to restrain evil for the moment, but he did it so that he wouldn't give up on people. He chose to weep. In Genesis 6, 6, we get the first glimpse of God suffering for the sins of the world. It grieved him. The only reason that there's any history is because God was willing to suffer. That's what Walter Stoff meant by the tears of God are the meaning of history. Listen, God, here's what, this is, blows my mind when I think, this week as I study this, God knew that sin was coming. Sin wasn't a surprise to him. It didn't catch him off guard. He knew the wreckage was coming even before creation. And yet he still created us and he voluntarily bind himself up with us. And he knew what he was going to have to suffer more than anyone could imagine. And yet he let history go on. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. And if you're a parent in the room, you know exactly what's going on here. Because no parent is under the illusion that their child is going to be perfect and never cause them any grief or pain. And if you are a parent in the room and you think that your child is perfect and will never hurt you, spoiler alert. What's true as a parent is that your child has access to parts of your heart that can cause you deep pain through their disappointment and rebellion. Deep pain. But there's no truly loving parent that would say, after being hurt by their child, I wish I'd never brought them into this world. No parent would say that. No, instead you would say, I would do it all over again. I would do it all over again. I can't imagine life without them. And why would you say that after deep pain being caused to you? Because your heart is bound up with them, because they are yours, because they belong to you. Listen, that's how God feels about you. That's how God feels about you. Just a small glimpse. There's actually something really incredible being shown to us here about the love of God through the grief of God. He knew you would sin. He knew that I would sin. He knew that you would be a wreck. He knew that I would be a wreck. He knew the renovation project was gonna cost him intensely. And he never flinched. What's happening here with the grief of God is he's saying, I'm willing to suffer so that you might live. I'm willing to suffer so that you might live. And this gets us to the final thing that I want us to see today, the God who saves the God who saves. So what's happening then is in Genesis 6, verse 8, it says that Noah found favor with God. And he stood out. What's happening is the wickedness of man is great in his day, but he stood out as someone who trusted God and walked with God. He was different. And so God made a promise with Noah that he would save he and his family from the judgment that was to come. And there's this amazing refrain, if you've ever read this narrative, this amazing refrain that happens four different times through chapter seven, it says, Noah did all that God commanded of him to do. Everyone else is living by what is right in their own eyes. But for Noah, it says, he did what God commanded him to do. It was different. But I want you to hear this. Unless we think that this story is about the righteousness of Noah, the central point, the central verse, like the thing that everything in this passage is driving to is chapter eight and verse one. Everything builds to this moment. Notice chapter eight, verse one. 
It says, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. The account of the flood isn't primarily a judgment story. The account of the flood is primarily a salvation story. God remembered Noah. It's not how Noah saved himself. There's nothing about Noah that could have saved himself from the judgment of God. There's nothing about anybody that can save themselves from the judgment of God. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be because God provides and God alone. And so here's what's happening in Noah. Noah teaches us about God's offer of salvation through one man and the righteousness of that one man. You know how the story goes down. Noah alone finds favor with God. He's the only one to be found righteous. Across all kinds of people who are unrighteous, he's the only one to be found righteous. But notice, his family and those who belong to him, they are saved through God's judgment because of their relationship to Noah. He didn't say that Noah's whole family was righteous. He said that Noah was righteous and the family is saved because they belong to Noah. God's covenant isn't with Noah's family. God's covenant is with Noah, but those who belong to Noah benefit from Noah's righteousness. And yet, the story tells us only seven people. His righteousness was only enough to save seven people. Just his wife, his sons, and their wives. And so what's happening then is the story of Noah points beyond itself to a greater Noah. It points beyond itself to a greater Noah that we need one who is truly righteous. We need one who finds favor with God. We need one who doesn't fail at the end of his life. We need one who does all that God commands until his dying breath. Jesus is the greater Noah. He's the truly righteous and obedient man who establishes a new covenant with God. And by belonging to Jesus, listen, and to Jesus alone, we can be saved. His righteousness is a benefit to us before God, but not just to us, to the whole world, not just to seven, but to the whole world and any who would look to Jesus. The flood teaches us about something really important in the way that God saves God saves through judgment. <laughs> we don't want judgment. Can't we just have like a, like a nice salvation? He saves through judgment. The flood wasn't only judgment. It was salvation through judgment. Here's what I mean. Think about the story. While the entire world is carrying on and, God, and saying to God, I don't need you. I don't trust you. What does Noah do? He builds an ark at the command of God. And everyone laughs at him. Everyone mocks him. A flood? Noah. A boat? Noah. A hundred years? Noah. Get a new hobby. But all the while, Noah is saying, God, I trust you. God, I believe you. And as the result, listen, as the result, when the waters of judgment started to rain down, the same waters that would press and crush everyone who didn't believe the word of God in judgment, they became the very same waters that would lift Noah up. They crushed everyone else, but they lifted Noah. The waters of judgment saved Noah. Salvation through judgment. Hang with this. And so how is it that Noah was saved when everyone else was drowned? The ark. The ark is how he was saved. 
The judgment that would sink everyone outside of the ark is actually the very same judgment that would save everyone who is inside the ark. They are saved because they were hidden in the ark. So then the question becomes for the finish today, who is the ark? What is the ark? Who is the ark? The flood story points beyond itself to the true ark of salvation and his name is Jesus. It is through judgment, through the judgment that he received that we can be saved. The same judgment that crushed Jesus on the cross will save you if you hide yourself in him. The judgment that Jesus took for sin can become your judgment and his righteousness can become your righteousness and he is the ark who will lead us safely back into the presence of God. John chapter five, verse 24, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that one has eternal life and he does not come into judgment because he's passed from death to life. Jesus is the ark. The tears of God, the tears of God are the meaning of history. Not only do the tears of God mean that he was unwilling to give up on you, you gotta hear that today, God's grief over sin means that he's willing to keep grieving and not giving up on you. It means that he's also willing to suffer so that you and I could live. He takes his own judgment on himself. You and I have rejected God. You and I have rebelled against God. Something has to reckon for that. And yet he brings the reckoning on himself in Jesus, the justice of God and the mercy of God come together. You realize the only people, what we do on Sundays when we sing songs to God is a kind of a crazy thing. Because do you realize the only people who can truly sing about God are people who have seen the tears of God and they've received mercy as an offer from him on the other side. That's why we sing. Our God has grieved over our sin, put himself in our place, and offered us mercy on the other side. He put a new song in our mouths. And so I told you that my hope today was to give you the story of Noah back. This is a story about the judgment of God. This is a story about the tears of God. This is a story about the God who saves. And so I have three questions as we end today, really simple questions. Not even on the screen, they're that simple. Do you belong to the greater Noah? Do you belong to the greater Noah? Is Jesus your ark? Have you hidden yourself in Jesus, or are there places in your life that you're hiding from Jesus? The invitation today is the exact same. If you have been a Christian for 30 years, or if you're here today and you're not a Christian, confused about what you might even believe about all of this, the invitation is the exact same. Come to the ark of God and be led into his presence, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray together.
God, I, I, don't, um, I don't know what you, I don't know all of what you must see. I don't know all of what you must see even just inside of me. But you see, God. God, thank you that because of what you've seen, God, thank you that you haven't turned away. Thank you that you didn't see and then turn away. Thank you that you saw and kept looking and grieved. Thank you that you've offered your son, Jesus, to be our ark who would bring us your mercy. God, I pray for everyone in this room today who is hiding from Jesus that there would be a turning of their heart to then hide in Jesus. God, thank you that you've provided a greater Noah and you've also provided an opportunity for us to belong to him. Attach us to your son, Lord Jesus. Offer this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.